From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, our focus is the Constitution in the present moment. Brown political science professor and author of The Oath in the Office, Corey Bretschneider, returns. And after that, we talk with Harvard's famed constitutional law professor, Lawrence Tribe. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. It seems that America has once again reached the precipice where it either goes off the democratic cliff or reverses course and return to its constitutional norms. The public discourse openly discusses whether the president obstructed justice. Members of the Trump administration, at least at the time of this broadcast, are brazen in their attempts to ignore congressional subpoenas. And the Democrats are debating which levers to pull. Is this a constitutional crisis in the making? Some say no because the Constitution is clear. It only becomes a crisis if we fail to adhere to those guidelines. While others cite loopholes to rationalize the Constitution's ambiguity. Either way, we're in uncharted waters. To begin the conversation, we welcome back Professor Corey Bretschneider. Professor Bretschneider is a political science and law professor at Brown University and the author of The Oath and the Office, a guide to the Constitution for future presidents. Professor Corey Bretschneider, welcome back to The Public Morality. Uh, thanks. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You know, we've had you on, it uh, seems like, frequently that uh, <laughs> I may have to get you on the masthead. I mean, I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd be honored. <laughs> And yeah, I think I gave you a blurb, right? Yeah, you uh, did. You did indeed. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so we'll have to get you on the mass here pretty soon. Right. You know. Great. Um, and since since we had you on uh, maybe about a month, two months ago, uh-huh. to discuss your book, uh, "The Oath in the Office: A Constitutional Guide for Future Presidents," you know, and I also had the pleasure of, of writing a review for that text. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I, I feel with each passing day, that book becomes even more prescient. Um, given the present day, and I wonder what your thoughts were. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, you know, it's one of these things that's a mixed blessing. I'm glad to have a relevant book and to be writing about something that's, you know, actually happening. But the, the truth is, I wish I was totally wrong and that these issues wouldn't matter and that this would all have gone away. But, you know, the book, unfortunately, each chapter seems to be relevant. There is a chapter about uh, the president's uh, right to fire uh, uh, the person investigating him and what's wrong with the current setup that would potentially allow that. And it looks like from the Mueller report that we now know that this wasn't just a possibility, but that it was actually happening, uh, that he was actively trying to get rid of Mr. Mueller. And what that chapter is about is why we needed to return to the independent counsel law that would uh, protect the person investigating the president from being fired without cause, and we just don't have that protection now. And so that 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 investigation and, and investigations like it are extremely vulnerable. And you saw the real devastation of that uh, kind of point that I'm making in the book, in that chapter, when the attorney general, who is a, I mean, there's no way, I, I don't see a reason to mince words, a, 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 a lackey of this president and doing his bidding in the worst possible way, 
got to make the decision of whether or not the president was going to be indicted on obstruction of justice. And, you know, the fact that he made the decision that he did, I don't think was based on the evidence. It was based on his political loyalty. And, and that really goes to the heart of what's wrong with the current system. The other chapter that's deeply relevant, it turns out, we now know because of the report, is I talk about the uh, current Department of Justice policy that says you can't indict a sitting president. And I go in depth about why I think that's wrong. Uh, those those memos that were written during the Nixon and Clinton administration lay out a case for these mid-level Justice Department employees, why they think that. But, but as I say in the book, I think it's a deeply flawed argument that confuses the idea of the dignity of office with the supposed dignity of the person in it. And it runs an argument about the president being too busy, basically, and too vulnerable as the executive branch to be held to the rule of law. And I say why that's a complete misunderstanding of the case law in U.S. v. Nixon and, and the uh, Clinton v. Jones case, Supreme Court cases. The reason why I go in depth right now, I'm bothering to talk so much about it, is because part two of the memo, which is about obstruction of justice, really relies on those memos as the explanation for why Mr. Mueller was not going to give a recommendation to indict or not. And uh, it's because of these, you know, flawed, silly memos, in my view, that we didn't get a recommendation to indict this president. And I just watched today Mr. Barr try to obfuscate around that at first, ignore it. And, you know, but when you read part two of the report, it's right there on pages one and two uh, that that's what's going on here. And, and um, just in terms of the, um, the the hierarchy, the special counsel actually is, works for the Justice Department. Correct. On, this, on the current system, which is the same system that we had during the Nixon administration, um, the, the, the special counsel's office is within the office of the attorney general. Now, there's uh, regulations that supposedly give the special counsel some independence. But the bottom line is the special counsel reports to the attorney general. And in this case, he said that he was bound by Justice Department policy, saying sitting presidents can't be indicted. And he turned over a report to the attorney general with the expectation that as the attorney general, cabinet official, that he could have overturned those memos and actually indicted the president. But Mr. Mueller, as a lower level official in the Justice Department, felt that he couldn't. Now, we used to have a different system, what was called the independent counsel. It sounds the same as the special counsel, but it was a very different system. And that was a post-Watergate reform passed by Congress that said, hey, you know, we can't have the, the lawyer investigating the president work for the president. And so in that system, uh, there was an independent judicial panel that appointed the person. They couldn't be fired without cause, without a kind of, um, you know, approval of that, without judicial review of that decision. And it was the person was very insulated from the political process. They didn't work for the attorney general the way that this special counsel does. And so in Iran-Contra, for instance, you know, that was an independent counsel. Ken Starr was an independent counsel, which led to the end of the law during Bill Clinton. But in my view, that was a, a really, regardless of what you think of Mr. Starr, it was a big mistake to allow that, that law to, to end. So several weeks ago, um, you were given the arduous task of discussing the Mueller report in three minutes on national television. <laughs> yeah. Now, we're going to give you a, a little bit more time than that. And <laughs> Thank you. However, I want you to speak also from the perspective um, of the report from the reporter and, 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 and talk about 
what, what, what you take is the key takeaway, but also factor, if you will, where we are in the public discourse today. I mean, because I know we've, we've got some catching up to do since the report came out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, the most significant part of the report, well, they're both significant, but I'll start with part two because I think that offers the clearest way forward. Part two outlines 10 instances, and, and as I say in that video for NBC, yes, 10, uh, of uh, possible obstruction of justice by the president. And they range from uh, the firing of Comey, which we've all known about, to an amazing story about him telling Don McGahn, his counsel, to fire uh, Mueller. Um, and, uh, you know, it goes on from, from there. And the way that the report was structured is that Mueller basically says, I'm just going to tell you about these 10 instances. They are possibly crimes, possibly provable beyond a reasonable doubt. But because of this sitting, because of this Justice Department memo that says I can't indict a sitting president, I'm not going to recommend indictment. I'm going to turn it over to the attorney general, Bill Barr, and let him make a decision. Now, not surprisingly, I guess, especially seeing Barr today, he just said, oh, I'm not going to, I don't think there's the evidence here to indict this president. But the idea of part two was to, first of all, put pressure on Mr. Barr to possibly indict the president, which he refused to do, uh, to also turn it over to Congress, which we now have the process starting, of them assessing, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but just, you know, is it likely that the president tried to obstruct justice? And then they can decide the independent question of impeachment. So it's passing the, the ball uh, to Barr, first of all, and then also passing the ball to Congress. And then he also says something very interesting in part two. He says, uh, assuming that the president is no longer in office, he can be indicted. And so this is also a letter to future prosecutors about how to go about an indictment in the instance that the, pres that the president is removed. Um, you know, that there's a, a big problem with that, which is that there's a limit. Five years is the sta statute of limitations on federal obstruction of justice. So if the president is reelected, that that'll never happen. It really requires removing him in order to um, in order to indict him. So part one um, is not about the obstruction. It's about the investigation of the Russian attempt to influence the election. And the report is very clear that that happened. Uh, and it says that there isn't evidence, uh, unlike what they say in part two, they're not going to, they didn't find evidence to even possibly indict the president um, uh, of uh, the crime of uh, not collusion, that's a, not a legal term, but of conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah. yeah, of conspiracy. And so, um, but to me, the relevance of part one is still in the impeachment uh, realm, because even if the president didn't commit a crime there, it's pretty clear from looking at the evidence that he knew about this Russian hack, he was benefited from it, and he never told the FBI, never told anybody. He was willing to basically, you know, at, at minimum, passively go along with it. Now, there's a duty of the president um, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. As I say in the book, the oath of office requires that the president um, has to uh, faithfully execute the office, a related idea. And uh, th those two obligations are so obviously flouted by a president who knows that there's a foreign hack of an election and, and isn't doing anything about it. So I, I think that, that that is especially relevant, part one, for, um, for impeachment uh, hearings, even if it's not provable beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed. Sorry. Is the letter um, that uh, was recently uh, made known publicly uh, mm -hmm. from special counsel Robert Mueller that expressed concerns to 
the way Attorney General um, William Barr summarized his findings. Mm-hmm. Is that is that letter significant, or is it just another piece, uh, something to talk about for several news cycles, and it will just fade away? I mean, I, I thought it was extremely uh, relevant because it, it goes to the, you know, I mean, I, 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 I'm just going to be blunt about it. The, the letter to me is filled with that minimum deception and likely lies. Uh, either that or it was so we're talking, negligent. We're talking about Barr's, the Barr's, Barr's four, summary. Four-page right. summation, okay. Exactly, yes. Barr summarized the Mueller report um, soon after he received it. And that that was part of what Mueller was complaining about. And, and I'm appalled by it now having seen the report because, for one thing, it says that Mr. Mueller didn't rely on the policy of not indicting a sitting president and making his assessment about obstruction of justice. Now, Mr. Barr said today that he was basing that on a conversation, private conversation that he had with Mr. Mueller. But when you read the actual report, it says the opposite on page, literally pages one and two of part two. So that was, I don't know if you want to call it misleading. To me, it seems like a a blatant lie. Now he claims he was told otherwise, fine. But if you're going to write a summary of what was found during the investigation, you don't rely on some off-the-cuff conversation. You read the report and you give a uh, a report of the report, and and this is the opposite of that. So I found that uh, really bizarre. Uh, I think too that in the press conference, that in his statements, Mr. Barr has sort of led the American people to believe that the president was exonerated by part two on obstruction of justice. And that is very far from the case. If anything, uh, it's making the argument for why he might be indicted. And it was Mr. Barr's decision not to do that. But the idea that the report exonerates him on that issue is wrong. And then finally, exonerate is way too strong a term um, or an impression to leave about the failure to take care that the laws are faithfully executed again on, on the hack case. So, yes, I, I was. I do think it's a huge deal. I think Mueller complaining about it tells us it's a big deal. And then when you actually compare what the summary, the four-page summary, said to uh, what actually is in the report, it, it's appallingly, at best, negligent. Today, he tried to get away with saying, oh, I wasn't summarizing the report. I was just summarizing the conclusions. That was one of the refrains you heard from him today in the hearings. And and I find that uh, dubious at best. I mean, it it said it was a summary. Everybody thought it was a summary. Now he's changing what it's supposed to be. Uh, Given the the work that you do, um, are you concerned that, um, say, Mueller's letter, and not just Mueller's letter, but just you know the the sort of the reaction to the to um, bar summary that people reacted to, but even before people even read the report. Now yeah. we have then we have the report, and then we have Mueller's letter. Are you concerned that these things just sort of work in tandem yes. to further entrench us into these, um, for lack of a better word, binary partisan corners where and it makes the Constitution even more a secondary consideration. Yes, I mean, I think that's exactly what happened. That you know, Barr has a lot of authority with many Americans, and people read the summary or listened to him describe it, and not surprisingly, they trusted him. And so he was able to use these three weeks before today's hearing um, and the day of the summary release to make the case to the American people that this was a big nothing burger, as I, I keep hearing people say, and it was a huge deal when you read the report. So as somebody who's, you know, 
uh, kind of trying to get out there and explain to people what's actually in it and what the issues of obstruction are, why there are possibly impeachable offenses that are uncovered there, very similar to the ones that were uncovered during the special prosecutor during Watergate. It, it, yeah, it's very, very frustrating because you you have somebody who's, yes, he's part of the cabinet, but he's the chief law enforcement uh, officer. And as he admitted during the hearings when he was confirmed, he's not supposed to be the president's advocate or personal lawyer. He's supposed to be representing all of us when a case is brought, a criminal case on behalf of the American people. That's the person charged with bringing it. And he doesn't bring it on behalf of the president or the king. He brings it on behalf of all of us. And so it's very, very frustrating to watch the chief law enforcement officer just mislead the American people. Now, for, for those who may be unaware, because you, you mentioned it earlier, talk about how an independent counsel versus a special counsel might alter the scenario you just articulated. Uh, there are a number of things. Uh, one is there, there, these policies that bound Mueller, evidently, that a sitting president can't be indicted, would not have bound an independent counsel. And in fact, one of the best pieces of writing about why those memos are wrong and why, indeed, a sitting president, and I'll just tell you the simple principle, the sitting president uh, isn't above the law because no one is so high in this country that they're above the law. That's from U.S. v. Nixon. And, um, the, and the Ken Starr's office actually wrote a memo on behalf of the office of the independent counsel when it existed, saying these memos are wrong, and if we find evidence that a president has committed a crime, we have the right to indict. So that's the main thing, that the indictment could have been brought. And there wouldn't have been the supervisory ability of the attorney general to override any decision by an independent counsel. They don't work for the attorney general the way that this system now has the special counsel working for the attorney general. And, of course, who does the attorney general work for? The president. So during the Nixon administration, we saw what was really wrong with the current system when Nixon fired two attorneys general because they were refusing to fire his uh, the special counsel looking into Watergate, uh, Archibald Cox. And R Richardson was f fired, uh, Elliot Richardson, the attorney general, then replaced by Ruckelshaus, who was fired, and then replaced finally by Bork, who did actually fire Cox. Now, Nixon didn't get away with it in the end, but he might have in a different scenario. And I think this president thinks, oh, I've got that same setup. I'm going to basically, you know, use my attorney general to quash the investigation. Now, he did it differently. He didn't fire, of course, Mueller, although he tried through Don McGahn. We now know that. Uh, but he did successfully so far use uh, Barr to, you know, say this isn't a big deal and to communicate the message that nothing was really found that's damaging. And, you know, that's not just misleading. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. Even if it's not obstruction of justice beyond a reasonable doubt, I think it likely is. Uh, it's certainly likely that the president committed obstruction of justice. I wish that uh, one of the senators would have said, do you believe that there's preponderance of the evidence or the non-fancy way of putting that that's more likely than not that the president committed obstruction of justice? I think he would have had to say yes. And, you know, the standard for impeachment is not did he commit a crime beyond a reasonable doubt? It's did he likely do it? And if he did, then there's an obligation to remove this president. And so this is a huge deal. But this this setup, to return to your question, that we've had that resembles the setup that Nixon had during Watergate is really the reason why we're facing what we're, we're facing. So I do blame Bill Clinton, if you want to know my view, for letting this law 
expire. It's a huge reason why we're in this situation. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Brown University political science professor and law professor uh, Corey Brettschneider, author of uh, The Oath and the Office of Constitutional Guide for Future Presidents. And Professor Brettschneider, um, President Trump and his legal team have filed a series of lawsuits against Deutsche Bank and Capital One to prevent them from turning over his financial records. He's filed one against uh, the chair of the House Oversight Committee, Elijah Cummings, prohibited those presently and formerly in his administration. Uh, many of who already testified uh, to Mueller. Uh, he's prohibiting them from testifying before Congress. Can you think of a similar scenario historically, and does this present a danger to those Democratic guardrails that you and I talk about frequently when you're on the show? I don't, I don't know if I can think of something similar at this level. I mean, I guess the closest thing that comes to mind is Nixon's uh, attempt to obstruct the investigation of Watergate by claiming executive privilege. And the Supreme Court in U.S. v. Nixon put a stop to that. Now, that was about uh, in the special counsel's investigation of Watergate, not about a congressional investigation. But to me, the same principle applies. Uh, especially since the Congress is directly charged by the Constitution with oversight of the executive branch. Now, in the end, these fighting of these subpoenas, I imagine they're going to do this in a number of places, claim executive privilege to not answer subpoenas, will have to go to the Supreme Court, and that Nixon precedent is the best weapon against what they're saying. That in the Constitution itself, in Article One's uh, duty, really, of Congress to provide oversight of the executive branch. Um, so, yeah, the precedent, I guess, is, is clearly Nixon, but not even Nixon was resisting congressional subpoenas in, in the way that this president is. And we've had so many presidents, you know, who this, this really, going back to your guardrails point of democracy, there, there are so many presidents who have uh, been on the other side of the aisle from people investigating, but they don't challenge the fundamental system. So think of the Reagan administration during Iran-Contra. They, they didn't refuse a single request. There was no even need for subpoenas. They just complied with the investigation. And, you know, that to me is the difference between a constitutional presidency, even one whose policy goals I didn't agree, don't agree with, um, uh, but, you know, who, who weren't threatening American democracy in the way that this president is. Now, now I'm, I know my next question, I'm, I'm asking to, to speculate just a tad, but I'm wondering... And I'd like to have you flesh out what I've been thinking. Mm-hmm. Say, so I put the onus on you. So if you, no, <laughs> so you know, if it's, if it's a bad answer, it's on you. I, I didn't say, that. Um, <laughs> okay. but but I wonder is this part the, the this obstru- I mean, it looks like legally from everyone I've read and everyone I, and people I've talked to, it sounds um, on the legal terrain the president has a weak case in terms of these mm-hmm. lawsuits. But mm-hmm. he is effective in slowing down the process. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so my question to you is, now Democrats could respond and maybe strengthen their hand by just opening uh, impeachment hearings. Uh, mm-hmm. But in doing that, does then that make the president uh, politically look like the victim of an overzealous Congress? Yeah, I mean, I I think I should say on the question of whether it's a weak case, it is a weak case. And, you know, I've given you my best arguments. 
But with this Supreme Court, I don't want to be too confident. I right, mean, during the right. travel ban case, I spent two years saying why it was so obviously a violation of the Constitution. And, you know, there were four votes on either side with Kennedy siding with the majority for with a bizarre, you know, middle of the road opinion. So that surprised me. And, you know, he's got Kavanaugh on the court now who was picked, in my view, largely because of his view of strong executive power and his explicit uh, law review piece narrowing U.S. v. Nixon to try to show that actually it isn't a huge uh, right of the subpoena power and there is a vast terrain of executive pr privilege that's left. So I don't want to, I guess, be, you know, confuse my strong feeling that he should lose the case with a prediction because with this court, who knows? On impeachment, I hear what you're saying and many people are right to worry, and we all are right to worry that impeachment could backfire. It did backfire on the Republicans during the Clinton administration. But I guess when I talk to people, and you know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe this isn't the right way to do it, but I start first with the principle: Did he commit high crimes and misdemeanors? And if he did, there is an obligation of the Congress to act. And so that's the first question that I'm really focused on. Now, on the backfire question, I guess I think that as the American pe people learn about the process, the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, and learn what this president did and what's in the report, that public opinion can shift. The votes were not there to uh, remove Richard Nixon during the Watergate hearings until they were. And uh, that's how I feel about this one, too, that you have to just keep pushing. And, you know, you look back, uh, and I've been looking in depth at Watergate and the process. It was very, very slow, and it really looked unlikely. It was politically unpopular. He was reelected, by the way, in the middle of the hearings, uh, you know, states. the investigation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and strongly reelected. But yet, in the end, justice was served, and so that that's that's my focus here too. Hmm. However, we come out on the other end of this uh, moment in American history. Has there been, in your in your view? Um, irreversible damage to those sacred democratic guardrails that we talk so much about? Yes, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> uh, there there has been, I mean, I do think that constitutionally this is the worst president in history. There are other examples of presidents doing bad things and doing unconstitutional things, but this president seems to have done all of them. And at least in the modern era, it's sort of assumed that presidents will try to speak on behalf of the American people. So in addition to the crimes, the thing that I most worry about, the erosion of the guardrails, is his refusal to speak out against you know, the opponents of American democracy, hate groups, uh, Nazis, the Klan, <laughs> you know, the uh, people who blow up uh, and shoot up religious institutions. And uh, you know, I can reach way back in history to find that. I find it in Woodrow Wilson and then the first Andrew Johnson. But that's going a long way back. And uh, this president is reviving a tradition of white supremacy and hate that I thought was gone from American politics. And uh, I think it's reversible. I wouldn't say it's irreversible, but I, it's going to be very hard uh, to do that. And it's going to be a, uh, certainly a challenge for the next president to try to change the culture to put that back in the small box that it deserves. I, you know, wrote a book, more academic book than The Oath in the Office called When the State Speaks, and it's about the obligation of all government officials to speak out against hate speech, especially given the First Amendment free speech protections that we have, the vast protections in this country. 
And I say if we're going to have these vast protections, it's incumbent on government to do something about it. Now, this president not only has failed to do something about it, he's spoken out in a way that gives it encouragement. And that, that's horrific to me. And, you know, the this is just one example, but the number of hate crimes against Jews that I just read is uh, more, up more than 100 percent. And I think if you look at other communities, Muslim Americans, African Americans, the, the hatred that's been stoked by this president is, uh, and the explicit hatred, not just the implicit or institutional racism that you have in this country is, is really off the charts. And that's one of the great, great tragedies that we're facing right now. Well, finally, um, short of uh, making Professor Corey Bretschneider a uh, constitutional czar, yeah. <laughs> uh, any uh, prescriptions on how we might recalibrate where you see us going in? Certainly, I certainly concur with that. I mean, I think, you know, like you and like everyone, I'm focused on this election. And I would say that this election needs to be a referendum on the Constitution and that it's not just about voting this president down. It's about looking for candidates that are going to try to put Humpty Dumpty together again to restore the ideals of the rule of law, the anti-racism that's required of a president, the things like the Independent Counsel Act, the uh, limit on emergency powers that we've seen this president abuse most recently with the wall, uh, war powers. So, you know, the book is partly an analysis of what the Constitution requires, but it's also a call to arms of how to put uh, the strength of the rule of law back. And that requires future Congresses and the next president uh, to act. Professor Corey Bretschneider, Brown University, political science author, um, of the oath and the office, a constitutional guide for future presidents. Um, we're we're going to work on that masthead. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, it's but, like really a pleasure to talk to you. You know, Williams the show and, is so in depth, and uh, well, it's since, a pleasure to do how it about, every time. How about we, you? Okay with Williams and Brett Schneider, or would you? So I love it. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Absolutely, I'd be honored. Thank you. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was Corey Brett Schneider. Stay tuned as I speak with famed constitutional law scholar Lawrence Tribe. Welcome back. Former Houston Oilers coach Bum Phillips, speaking about Hall of Fame running back Earl Campbell, once said, If he's not at the top of his class, I can tell you it doesn't take long to take role. One might say likewise about Lawrence Tribe. Harvard's famed constitutional law professor touts former President Barack Obama, Texas Senator Ted Cruz, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Associate Justice Elena Kagan among his illustrious former students. We are honored to have him on The Public Morality. Professor Lawrence Tribe, welcome to The Public Morality. Good to be with you, Byron. Well, let's begin by you offering um, a, a distillation of the impeachment process. What does the Constitution say about impeachment, and how has it been used historically? Well, the Constitution says that any officer of the United States, that certainly includes the president, the vice president, cabinet members, and judges, that is, judges of the federal courts, 
um, shall be removed from office upon conviction of any high crime and misdemeanor, including treason and bribery, but not limited to treason and bribery. And then it sets up a process in which impeachment is essentially equivalent to an indictment by the House of Representatives, and it's done by a mere majority vote as the result of impeachment proceedings and articles of impeachment that then get voted by the House of Representatives. And then the House of Representatives sets a team of what are called managers over to the Senate to conduct a trial against the president, which is presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States. Of course, at that point, it's conceivable that the Senate would balk and simply decide to not do anything. That would violate its constitutional oath, but senators have been known to drag their feet and not do what the Constitution requires before, uh, and no court would require them, would order them to do anything. But in the past, whenever there has been an impeachment of a president, and that has happened only to Andrew Johnson in 1868 and to Bill Clinton in 1998. Whenever there's an impeachment of a president, there's been a trial in the Senate. And in that trial, Andrew Johnson was acquitted by a single vote. Bill Clinton was rather massively acquitted. And then, of course, there is the case of Richard Nixon, who didn't quite get impeached, but knew as a result of a visit from senior leaders of his own party, that if he didn't resign, he would be impeached and quite certainly convicted. And that's about it. We've had one Supreme Court justice uh, impeached but not convicted. Uh, we've had one cabinet member back in the day uh, impeached and convicted. We've never convicted and removed the president. And if the Senate convicts, then it has a second task, and that is to decide whether the convicted president shall be forever disqualified from holding any other federal office. And that's all it can do. It can't put him in jail. It can't order any punishment. The president remains subject to indictment, conviction, sentencing, uh, and all of the criminal process after he is removed, based even if on exactly the same things that he was convicted of by the Senate. There's no problem of double jeopardy because the Senate conviction is not a punishment. It's simply a protection of the country by removing the renegade president. And, and, and to your last point, that that's um, the significance of uh, President Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon. Is that correct, sir? Right. Well, when Nixon was no longer in office, you're right, he could have been prosecuted for many of the offenses. Uh, that the Senate would have convicted him of if he had stayed. But the fact is he didn't stay. He resigned, and he was subject to prosecution. But Gerald Ford decided to, as he put it, end this national nightmare by issuing a quite controversial pardon. Hmm. That uh, could happen this time, too. I mean, if Donald Trump leaves office or is defeated and and actually leaves, although he's begun to make noises about not leaving, even if he is defeated in 2020. Uh, either way, when he's gone, he could be pardoned by his successor. 
if he leaves, for example, if he were to lose in 2020 to, you know, to uh, Pete Buttigieg or to Elizabeth Warren or to any of a number of other possible candidates, Joe Biden, he could resign just before the new president is inaugurated, thereby making Mike Pence the president. And Mike Pence then presumably, whether or not there was an actual deal in place, could presumably pardon Donald Trump. So it may be that he will permanently escape accountability unless, at a minimum, he is impeached by the House of Representatives. And that will be a kind of accountability, even if, as it now appears likely, he would not be convicted and removed by the Senate. You also mentioned in your last answer, so you talked you talked about high crimes and misdemeanors. What is that exactly, and is it is it something similar to what Justice Potter Stewart defined when he talked about hard, the hardcore pornography test? I, I just know it when I see it. No, it's a little more than that. I mean, when Gerald Ford said, basically, high crimes and misdemeanors are whatever we in the Congress claim they are, uh, he was speaking, I think, rather colloquially. What he meant to say, I suppose, is the Supreme Court is not going to tell us what a high crime and misdemeanor is. It's up to us. But that doesn't mean they can say it's a high crime and misdemeanor to be a bad guy or to have terrible policies. It's very clear from the meaning of the Constitution to everyone at the time, although there were some disagreements, everyone agreed that one of the things, and they put this right in the text, that you can be impeached and removed for is treason. Everyone agreed bribery. And then they said, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, which it's quite clear meant things like treason and bribery, that is, things that are an abuse of the president's power or of the laws of the country in winning power, and an abuse that undermines constitutional democracy and the rule of law, not just any old abuse. That is, it was decided in the Nixon case, for example, that tax fraud, which he had committed even while president, was not an impeachable offense. It didn't undermine the ability of the country to govern as a, as a democracy rather than an aristocracy or an autocracy. Now, now, some, now some, I've heard some legal scholars um, offer that... Um the case of Andrew Johnson, the, the Johnson didn't meet that standard, that, that a lot of that was political. I was wondering how you saw that. Well, you know, that's a controversial one. In my book with Joshua Metz, the book that was published last year, To End a Presidency, The Power of Impeachment, which just came out in paperback with a new epilogue, in that book we examine the Andrew Johnson case quite closely, and we conclude that although the article of impeachment that was tried ultimately in the Senate and that failed was kind of a phony article. It said that he had fired a cabinet member in violation of the Tenure of Office Act without getting the Senate's consent. The Tenure of Office Act was later held unconstitutional. That was really not an abuse of power. But he did abuse power in other ways that I think would have made it quite proper to impeach and remove him. He basically refused to accept the results of the Civil War, and he was about to go on to a program of undoing the results of the Union victory by reinstating all sorts of 
oppression of former slaves in the South. That would have been a powerful reason to remove him from office. As it turned out, the fact that he was impeached but not removed didn't give him great new power of the sort that people are afraid Trump would exercise if he were impeached and not removed. On the contrary, Johnson was pretty much rendered impotent. The impeachment crippled him, even though he was acquitted. As a political matter, he ended up pulling back from some of the most terrible things he was planning to do in terms of kind of restoring pretty much the essence of the Confederacy. It's very often believed, I think fallaciously, that the worst thing you can do is impeach a president and then not completely convict and remove him, that that would give him bragging rights and would make him all-powerful and would mean that his party would prevail the next time around. Well, it doesn't necessarily work out that way. It's true that Clinton, who was impeached for nothing that remotely approximated a high crime and misdemeanor, he was impeached for lying about sex with, an, you know, with a White House employee. That's not exactly a threat to the survival of democracy and the nation, however tasteless and and abusive of the employer-employee relationship it might have been. His popularity did go up, but in the next election, a Republican was elected president. Al Gore lost, and the Republicans took over the House and the Senate. So it's not at all clear, as some people seem to fear, that if the House of Representatives were to do what many people believe is its duty and conduct impeachment hearings and hear witnesses like Don McGahn and others, and then impeach Donald Trump for colluding, not conspiring, but colluding with a hostile foreign power in order to become president, and then for systematically obstructing the inquiry into that collusion. If he were impeached, even if not a single Republican in the Senate ends up voting to convict him. And we can't assume that that's going to be the case. I mean, they look like nothing could change their minds, but we don't know. But even if that were the case, it doesn't follow that Trump would then sail to victory in 2020. And he might really be crippled by the public knowledge of just how criminal a president he turned out to have been. Well, well following, up, following up on that, if I may, sir, um, I've heard. I've also heard the the, the counter argument um, going back to the um, New Gingrich-led impeachment of President Clinton. That if there aren't, in this case with President Trump, if there are not twenty Republican votes in the Senate, doesn't it, in some ways, are you concerned that it might delude uh, impeachment, making it essentially a, a more of a perfunctory process, and and might, they might even further erode our democratic guardrails? Is that a concern for you? Well, I suppose it's conceivable, but I think the opposite is much more likely. That is, if Donald Trump is not impeached after a clear conclusion that he didn't win the office fair and square, that he won it with Russia's help, that he invited that help, and then that he tried to cover up by acting like basically a king rather than a president bound by law, tried to cover up all of the inquiries into what Russia was doing and is still doing. It seems to me that if that does not suffice 
to be a high crime and misdemeanor, that will make the impeachment power essentially useless. Because who deserves impeachment if someone who didn't win office fair and square hmm. and then tried to cover up all the details, leaving the country insecure? If such a person doesn't deserve to be impeached, then nobody does. It seems to me that that's really the existential question that members of the House are going to have to ask themselves. Are we going to try to predict the precise political future, what the pros and cons will be of impeachment, or are we going to do our job? And doing your job sort of means that if somebody has gravely abused power, then that person is not fit to remain president. In fact, if you go back to the framing, the key example that they had in mind, and they were very explicit about it in the Constitutional Convention and in the Federalist Papers, that if a president becomes president through the help of a not always friendly foreign power and is then beholden to that power, that person has to be removed. And the only way the European countries used to remove people in circumstances like that was through assassination. Ben Franklin thought that was not really the best way to go. Therefore, we have to have a peaceful way to remove someone who is an essentially illegitimate president. And that more peaceful way is impeachment. And if impeachment doesn't fit here, then where will it fit? If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe. Professor Tribe, I want to uh, qu- uh, go to a piece that you recently wrote in USA Today. Quote, I have written about the dangers of impeachment talk. The consequential and divisive decision to, Im- to impeach is not to be taken lightly or not to be used as a tool of conv- uh, political convenience and should be avoided until the dangers holding back exceed the dangers of, proce- of proceeding. With the arrival of Mueller's damning report, however, that time has come. So my question to you, sir, do we have enough information for the impeachment process, um, in your view, uh, to, to proceed? I certainly think we have enough in order for impeachment hearings to proceed. Whether you call them impeachment hearings or oversight hearings is less important than what they are. What they are is essentially a a movie version of the book. The book was the Mueller report with all its attached evidence. Barr has refused to release it, although the report in redacted form is out there, the evidence isn't. But in any case, the the American people aren't going to read 468 pages, but they're going to watch must-see TV. And when they hear straight from people like Don McGahn, the president's White House counsel. Uh, The president ordered him to obstruct the inquiry by firing the head of that inquiry, by firing uh, Bob Mueller. And when they hear from him that the president then told him to create a fake record to the contrary, that is, to lie about whether he had been told to fire Mueller, when they see that with their own eyes and hear it with their own ears, I think that's going to make a big difference, and that will connect the dots and provide the credibility that a mere piece of paper or 468 pages of paper can't quite provide. So I don't think it makes sense, as some Democrats seem to think, that we should vote articles of impeachment tomorrow, because the country isn't there yet, and it isn't there partly because it hasn't seen for itself what 
this fellow did in order to become president and what he's done in order to stay in office and stay in power. But certainly we have enough to go forward with vigorous hearings of the very sort that Nadler and Schiff are beginning to undertake. I mean, as of today, it appears to me that Bill Barr is already in contempt of Congress by not complying with its subpoena to produce the full unredacted report with all of the background evidence. They're going to pursue that contempt. They might even use their own inherent powers to pursue it in the absence of cooperation from the Justice Department. I should think that Don McGahn will agree to testify. The president has no right to stop him. He certainly has no right to stop Mueller from testifying. And then we're off and running. And it seems to me that the truth will make us free. It's unclear that there's going to be enough backbone and principle in the Senate to act on the truth, but I'm sort of counting on the House, despite the reluctance that it quite properly shows to move too quickly here. I'm counting on the House to do its duty. Hmm. Um, you, you mentioned Attorney General Barr, and I want to uh, get your thoughts on, on a quote that he gave um, during the recent testimony before the Senate. Quote, an investigation is based on uh, an investigation is based on false allegations. The president does not have to sit there constitutionally and allow it to run its course. That is important because most of the obstruction claims that are being made here are episodes here do involve the exercise of the president's constitutional authority. Your thoughts, sir? I think that that statement in itself shows that Barr does not become doesn't deserve to be attorney general. He's acting as a defense counsel. It is just, I mean, if you deconstruct that sentence, what he's saying is if the president believes that duly constituted investigatory authorities are on a witch hunt because he personally believes he's innocent, and I don't know any president who doesn't believe in his own innocence, especially this one, then he's free to stop the investigation. And what a cool deal. If you think you're innocent, you can tell the cops to lay off and, and, and dismiss charges against yourself. I mean, that's not the way government under law works. That's just like Nixon saying, if I do it, if the president does it, it's not illegal. That can't be up to the president. It has to be up to some process by which the democracy holds the president to account. You know, one, one um, I'm thinking about the present moment, and, it, and, it, and, and in some respects, I'm also thinking about um, the run-up to World War One and subsequently, because it seemed during um, during that World War One that you had the executive branch sort of leading this war and then instituting the Espionage and Sedition Act, and then Congress and the Supreme Court sort of acquiesced so that we were no longer co-equal branches of government, and I wonder, are you worried that 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 is happening now? Well, I I think, you know, both World War I and World War II, in which Congress declared war, are really not examples of executive overreach, in my opinion. Uh, Maybe the Vietnam War was, with the rather phony Gulf of Tonkin resolution that substituted for a declaration of war, and certainly our adventure against Iraq based on phony presidentially concocted claims of weapons of mass destruction, uh, that was an example of executive overreach. And we are, in recent decades, moving 
more and more in the direction of an imperial presidency, but we've never gotten anywhere close to the virtual dictatorship that this fellow wants to set up. I mean, he has basically said that because he believes that the two-year investigation was unfair, that he deserves two extra years as reparations, uh, and that two years should be tacked onto his terms. I mean, no former president has ever challenged the right of the American people to vote him out of office, and this guy is basically saying, and if you want an example of executive overreach, this is surely it. He's basically saying, no, I mean, I admire those guys like Xi in China who are president for life, and I think it's a pretty cool deal for me to be able to write my own ticket. He has incentive to do so because under the Justice Department's policy of not indicting a sitting president, policy that I have never thought justifiable. Under that policy, he's got a stay-out-of-jail-free card as long as he's in office, and that gives him an incentive not only to run again, but to claim to have won. And it seems to me the only thing that will make that claim so preposterous that he just will not be able to get away with it is if he loses by a landslide. And I'm hoping that that's exactly what an impeachment, even if it doesn't result in a conviction, would help to bring about. Now, I just want to be clear. I apologize for my lack of clarity, but I was thinking more along the lines of uh, about with regard to World War One, the passing of the Sedition and Espionage Act and those things being upheld uh, by the Supreme yes, Court. Well, that's and, certainly uh, true. But, right. But that's not the president. That's Congress. That is, Congress was willing to pass lots of laws that wouldn't pass muster under today's version of the First Amendment, even the version that the current Supreme Court is likely to uphold. A lot of those laws made it a crime simply to advocate war resistance or to advocate certain forms of government without actually inciting anyone to violence. But that's not likely to be the law now, and I don't think one can blame it's true that Wilson was anything but a civil libertarian and that he went much too vigorously after unions and after groups that he thought were in opposition. But he had the full complicity of Congress in doing most of that, Congress passing versions of the Espionage Act that were much too broad and had a terrible chilling effect on quite peaceful dissent and protest. And, and could, couldn't we also posit... Um now, landmark cases such as Schenck and uh, the Debs case, um, the Supreme Court sort of has their hand in that acquiescence as well. Absolutely. And the court really, you know, it's not until 1965 that the U.S. Supreme Court ever actually struck down an act of Congress based on the freedom of speech clause of the First Amendment. It's quite a myth to think that our nation was really protective of free speech and dissent until relatively recently. And the one area where the current Supreme Court has been pretty strong, something too strong when it comes to corporate speech and speech funded by lots of rich guys, um, one area where it's been awfully strong is on the freedom of speech. And the only hesitation I have about giving the court really a high grade there is I think it hasn't taken enough account of the problems of money and power purchasing speech and it hasn't taken enough account of the way in which the executive might distort the truth. That is, the court has been quite deferential to the president when 
constitutional challenges are made to the travel ban and to any number of other things that the president has done. Mm. So, so finally, I'm, so I'm, I'm wondering, is, is that not, as you just sort of outlined, is that not part of, perhaps part of the president's strategy, that if he can sort of run out the clock and may get this into a court that has, to some degree, been favorable to... Uh, is that, is that a possibility, a possible strategy? Sure. It's quite clear. It's clear that even people who find him a pretty terrible dude are happy, some of them, with the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh appointments, certainly happy with McConnell's leaving the Scalia seat vacant and not even giving Merrick Garland a hearing. And even though she seems like she's a incredibly vigorous and strong. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, like all the rest of us, can't live forever. And I think it is part of this president's strategy to contest any election that he or his favored people in the House and Senate don't win, and to keep packing the court with people who share his view of almost unlimited executive power, and who share his view that women's bodies are not subject to their own control, and who share his view that the separation of church and state doesn't mean much. And when I say his view, I don't mean that Trump actually believes any of these things. I don't think he believes in anything, as far as I can tell, except his own wealth, fame, power, that of his family. But he has found it convenient as a former Democrat to adopt all of these positions, and especially the position that if the president is using his power, however corruptly, he can't be held accountable. That's the view that his hand-picked attorney general, who basically wrote a job application, an unsolicited job application, explaining how he would protect Trump, that's the view that Barr seems to take. If, it, if the president is using his power, even if he's abusing it and using it corruptly, he's home free. And that's not what the rule of law means. The rule of law means that nobody, not even a duly elected president, much less one whose election was rather dubious, is above the law. Professor Lawrence Tribe, Harvard University, I'm going to thank you, sir, for joining me today on the Public Morality. It's been an honor to speak with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Morality on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.